Here we go with the official show. I'm Eli Sussman, here with you as usual. This should start feeling like a routine, doesn't it? Every Monday morning, I'll have these episodes about 30 minutes apiece, getting you caught up on what's ever happening in the Miami Marlins universe. First segment will be recapping what happened over the weekend, the latest news and other developments, and then always a deep dive into another topic as well during the second half of the episode that's a little off the beaten path, and this episode certainly meets that mark where uh, we're kind of in the dog days of spring training, three quarters of the way through, 18 games down, only six more to go. Uh, All the players are ready for the real games to start, and all the fans are definitely ready to watch this team on a regular basis, which we have not been able to do. So there's only so much that I can analyze during these first few minutes. Later on, we'll get into... Uh, what I'm very excited for, the second year of our Fish Stripes Marlins Hall of Fame project, a project born at this time exactly one year ago out of uncertainty regarding the actual MLB season, creating a digital home for the greatest individuals and moments in Marlins history. The franchise, we could argue, has not done a great job of celebrating its history So we at Fist Stripes want to be sure to do that as best we can with the help from our community. So getting more into that later on. So first, the recaps of what happened to the Marlins over the weekend with games on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, a rare loss for this team in Grapefruit League play, only their fourth loss all spring, losing to the Nationals on the road 7-4. Sixto Sanchez making his second start of the spring, pitching three perfect innings. A lot of ground balls in there, no strikeouts, which is something if you want to nitpick, you could say that through two starts and four and two-thirds innings. He has still not had a single strikeout this spring, but did a much better job compared to his first start in terms of just throwing strikes with all his pitches. The quality of his stuff was great as usual. Fastball velocity, exactly where you'd hope it would be. Uh, Sitting in the high 90s, maxing out at 101, according to the stadium scoreboard in West Palm Beach but only three innings because he's still getting built up pretty methodically. Pitching out of the bullpen that night, Gio Gonzalez making his very first appearance with the Marlins organization in an actual competitive setting. He'd been throwing live BP before this, of course, signed by the Marlins at the beginning of March, and we have a more detailed article about Gio that's up as part of our season preview series. In this appearance, just a total disaster on every level for Gio, His final line, one-third of an inning, eight hits, seven earned runs, and two walks. It was uh, was ugly. It was as ugly as it could possibly get. Thanks to the quirky spring training rules, uh, they tried to save him from some embarrassment. He was able to actually come out of the game with no outs in his first inning of work, while uh, Jake Fishman, the lefty reliever, bailed him out. Then Gio reemerged for the following inning uh, to try to get back on track and build up his pitch count, and was only able to record one out in that inning before uh, Don Mattingly had seen enough. After the game, Gio said all the right things about being disappointed, but he's genuinely, uh, not genuinely concerned for himself. He's been through this before, uh, probably been in about 15 Major League Spring trainings in his career, and not all of them have gone his way. Things happen, you move on, you know, part of spring training, 
you got to get out there when the bell rings. You got to go out there and pitch. You got to make the adjustments. You know, then again, you know, I'm coming out of the pen trying to trying to make stuff work. You know, that's uh, that's uh, that's pretty much the game plan. Just turn this page and move forward. As long as my shoulder feels fine, that's all I can ask for. But this, if, if there's any doubt before, this kind of rules out any possibility of him being on the opening day roster. He clearly has some things to iron out. Uh, not the greatest quality of competition in this appearance. A few handful of guys. Juan Soto, most notably, was in the Nationals lineup. Starling Castro. It was a mix, though, of regulars and reserved for the Nationals. And especially during that seventh inning of work, he got beat up by some no-names and some prospects. So uh, discouraging, to say the least, but only one outing for him. Later in that game, it was already kind of out of hand, but J.J. Blade, who came in off the bench, he had an RBI double in this game off of T.J. McFarland, who is a veteran lefty. He's been around at least five seasons, I think, in the major leagues. With two outs, Blade roped an RBI double against him. And that's really encouraging to see. For the biggest skeptics of Blade, we'll say he might only be a platoon player when all is said and done because of some difficulties against left-handed pitching. So to see him succeed in that matchup was very encouraging. Blade also added a sacrifice fly later in that game. Uh, that same day on Saturday was the leading off event at Marlins Park. So far south of where this game was taking place in West Palm. I think they stretched it over, they said it was stretched over five hours. Based on people that were actually there, it was closer to three, maybe three and a half. We have a full article from Nicole Cahill that's up on Fish Stripes as part of our official news where she explains her experience and shares some photos of what went on. And I also curated some of the best stuff that I found on Twitter of the event. It was it seemed like really fun for the people that were there, but it was a very intimate event. I think they, they maxed the capacity at 2,500. The actual number who showed up was probably just a fraction of that because they tried to limit it to Marlins members and other high-priority groups. The, so the aim was not to maximize the turnout or the revenue. It was you know, just to really give this sample of fans, these diehards, uh, an experience worth remembering, letting them see the clubhouse, letting them on the field, and letting the kids, most importantly, the kids uh, see, play on the field as well and emulate their heroes on the major league team. Moving forward to Sunday, Astros at Marlins at Roger Dean and Jupiter, and the Marlins come back with a win, 4-2. to two. Jazz Chisholm Jr., with the go-ahead home run in that one, his third home run of the spring. This one by StatCast tracked at 415 feet, about 110 miles per hour off the bat. Jazz now has not only the hardest hit ball of a spring training, which was one of his previous home runs, but now the longest tracked ball by distance for any Marlins player in a spring training game. You'll remember it was not that long ago we were talking about his struggles in spring training, his bad approach. It continues to be a very aggressive approach, which has, which is limiting his on-base potential a little bit. But I mean, in terms of the overall numbers in spring, now hitting 250 with an 871 OPS, which uh, you really can't nitpick that too much at all. He is someone that heading into spring training was my expectation for the guy that would win that second base battle between him and Isan Diaz. That first beginning part of spring training, it seemed that Isan was really outperforming him. There are still some very encouraging things about what we've seen from Isan Diaz this spring. 
Uh, but bottom line is that he just has not been as productive offensively. Only about two hits for Isan this spring. They've both been extra base hits, and he works deeper counts. Stylistically, they're very different players with their own strengths, but it just seems this is reinforced what I think has been pretty obvious, that Jazz has the higher upside. He has the louder tools on both sides of the ball, although Isan's defense this spring has been encouraging as well. And we'll see how the decision they ultimately make. It's just, it's really hard to justify seeing Isan as a player that gives you the better chance to win right now. And the reality is that decision should be a little bit more complicated than about just who wins for you right now during this Marlins season in a stacked division where they know that winning right now isn't necessarily the end-all, be-all. A lot of factors to consider. I'm very anxious to see how that all plays out, and we should be finding out relatively soon. For the moment, both of them still in Major League Camp. Neither of them have been optioned yet. This is seemingly going down to the wire. Some other notes uh, at the end of Sunday's game. Brian Anderson now 14 strikeouts and no walks this spring in 33 plate appearances. Nothing to be concerned about because the B.A. now heads into his fourth season already, kind of locked in as the everyday third baseman. He has nothing left to prove. In fact, last spring, he did not draw a single walk that entire time. It's not, not really much to read into it, but just a very quirky stat to see from someone that the Marlins are definitely going to be relying on a lot in 2021. On the pitching side, Trevor Rogers again, extremely impressive. This was his fourth start of the spring, and it just reinforced a lot of the positives we've been seeing from Rogers this spring, where the fastball velocity, the improvement is real. All the the training that he's done to get stronger uh, steadily throughout his professional career has paid off. He maxed out at 97 miles per hour early in this game, and he was still comfortably sitting 93-94 into the middle innings. He ends up working five innings, six strikeouts, now has 19 Ks overall this spring. That's tied with Sandy for the most on the entire pitching staff. And the thing I'm most excited about relative to what we already knew about him last year, and last year was a very encouraging debut if you looked at the peripherals and for some of the reasons we've discussed, the key is the slider. That's now his third pitch, his third legitimate major league quality pitch. You can see the difference in this. Uh, the way he's using it and the frequency he's using it with and the situations he's using it in, all that stuff shows how confident he is in the pitch. The numbers back it up, where for most of these games, three of his four starts, they've been in Roger Dean, where we can track it by uh, StatCast, and that shows that the spin rate on his slider is higher than ever compared to where it was last regular season, where it was last spring and and the 2020 postseason as well. You can filter that all using the miraculous baseball savant website. And he threw in this game one slider that had 2,350 revolutions per minute of spin on it. And that is, according to StatCast records, the highest spinning slider that he has thrown in a any sort of major league game is topped out on a slider that he threw earlier this month against the Astros in another start. He's he's doing this consistently. He would do this at times last year. He would get up to that range, but he's been sitting there pretty consistently throughout the spring. The, the work that he's put in has paid off. He's throwing it more consistently. He's throwing it close enough to the zone to get chases. I mean, it's really hard to not be absolutely thrilled about what Rodgers is showing. 
about his potential to, at the very least, he's going to be a guy that has great strikeout potential um, at the major league level. It's hard to see a scenario where he doesn't because of how he gets ahead in the count, and now he has three ways, really, to finish you off. Coming out of the bullpen in this one, an easy ending for Dylan Floro. That's encouraging. We knew he was a little bit behind schedule because of some soreness earlier in camp. Anthony Bass comes in, and he gets his first quote-unquote save as a Marlin, pitching a third of an inning at the very end of this one to clinch the 4-2 victory. And just going back to Trevor Rogers and the starters, this spring overall they've combined to pitch 53 innings. That's Sandy, Pablo, Eliezer, Sixto, Rogers. They've started all the games to this point. They've combined for a 2.38 ERA with 59 strikeouts in those 53 innings, only three home runs allowed as a starting unit. Very encouraging. A couple other notes from this week. Pablo Lopez finally officially confirmed as the starter for the second game of the season coming up on April 2nd against the Rays following Sandy, and we expect Eliezer to almost certainly be the number three starter behind them. Uh, In Kansas City, Kansas City has been big spenders all offseason and into the spring. They finalized a four-year, $82 million contract extension with their veteran catcher, Salvador Perez, someone who I would have loved to see in Miami, either as, uh, via trade or in free agency this upcoming year. And now that very obviously is not going to happen, leaves the Marlins with one less possibility to be the, a productive catcher long-term, putting even more pressure on Jorge Alfaro to reach his potential here this season. Uh, a great moment on, oh, what was this, Friday or Saturday with uh, Al Leiter's son, Jack Leiter must have been on Saturday, throwing a 16-strikeout no-hitter for Vanderbilt. Jack Leiter throughout this process has been, if not the very best draft prospect who's eligible to be drafted this summer, then certainly in the top two or three, and he continues to show he's such a complete pitcher. Almost 25 years to the day of Al Leiter throwing his no-hitter for the Marlins. The similarities between them are kind of uncanny. Marlins won't have the opportunity to to draft Jack Leiter. He's going to go too early in the draft, and the Marlins don't pick until the middle round. But great to see that the apple does not fall far from the tree. And then looking forward to Monday, it's going to be the Cardinals at the Marlins, technically a Marlins home game at Roger Dean. Great starting pitching matchup with Jack Flaherty and Sandy Alcantara. A 105 first pitch in the afternoon, and we're going to have credentialed coverage at the game from Nicole Cahill. She'll be there in the press box. And you're going to be able to finally watch this one on cable, assuming you have cable or Fox Sports Florida from some provider. They're finally going to air that one locally in South Florida uh, with Todd Hollinsworth. He's going to be the analyst combining with the Cardinals broadcasters to, to bring you that one finally on TV. That appears to be the one and only spring training game that they're going to widely distribute on TV. Very much looking forward to that. It's the final full week of spring training, and the most important thing, we we can nitpick about uh, all the individual player developments going on. That's all great. Most important thing is that nobody gets hurt. The Marlins so far have been very lucky in that department compared to other major league teams. Fingers crossed that it keeps up, that they get through these final six games with all their options still available and have some good problems at the end of camp when deciding how to fill out their active roster. And as I teased in the intro, it's also Fish Stripes Marlins Hall of Fame week for our second year, trying to bring in yet another class of key individuals into the Hall of Fame and celebrate this franchise's history. 
But first, get familiar with Symbol. Symbol, spelled S-I-M-B-U-L-L, is the stock market for sports. You trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your teams win. Use your sports knowledge to buy low, sell high, join the 2,000-plus early adopters who have already started with Symbol. Trading for MLB teams is now live starting today. Right now, it's live. That includes Sim Marlins, which you can get for only $20 per share. It's going to go up if they win, so you jump in while the value is at its best. Visit Symbol.app, www.simbull.app to create your free account. When you deposit, do yourself a favor and use the promo code FISHSTRIPES, all one word, for a $10 bonus. Visit Symbol.app, use our promo code FISHSTRIPES for a $10 deposit bonus to help build your portfolio. Invest in what you know. Invest in sports. And with that, we switch gears to our Marlins Hall of Fame talk, a project that I started almost at this time one year ago, right after the pandemic struck. We ended up inducting seven players, Miguel Cabrera, Luis Castillo, Jeff Conine, Jose Fernandez, Mike Lowell, Gary Sheffield, Dontrell Willis, as well as nine other key members of the organization, uh, broadcasters, executives, diehard fans, and you can see all that. We have a special section. Did you know that? We have a special section that has been right up there in our menu on fishstripes.com, and that's where you can see how last year's process played out, where we split it evenly between staff and the fans. Our staff uh, cast our own votes privately, and that's weighed at 50%. Then we had the fans, and they cast their own votes at 50% as well, and I average those percentages together, and we see who meets the threshold for induction. You're familiar, of course, with the big National Baseball Hall of Fame process, where their threshold is 75%. For our purposes, I felt that was a little inappropriate. I lowered it to 70% for most players, players that are for what I consider the Florida era of Marlins history, having played most, if not all, of their Marlins careers in the 2011 or before seasons. Then there's the Miami-era players who joined uh, either after 2012 or spent most of their years with the organization since 2012 when the team rebranded and moved into Marlins Park. For them, I make the threshold a little bit higher, made it all the way up to 85%. Because I'm very concerned about recency bias here. We want to celebrate our history, but when we put somebody in, uh, we want to leave them in forever. We don't want there to be any controversy, and we don't want any bias to kind of cloud the way this plays out in the short term. Which is uh, So this is why I pushed off a little bit on some of the other recent stars that you'll find out shortly. They're finally available this year, weren't available last year. Last year, seven players in. Uh, Jose Fernandez was the one Miami-era player that got in. All the others were from the Florida era. So we had a a lot of rollover from last year. I'm going to highlight a handful of those guys that rolled over from the 2020 ballot that fell a little bit short of the 70% threshold but remain eligible. Um, I don't think I've even decided exactly on how many years of eligibility these players have. Uh, if, if we really commit to this project year after year, then I think I should come up with some hard and fast rules for that for, for the time being, at least indefinitely. As long as these guys uh, get at least 5% of the fan vote, we're going to leave them on. So it starts with one 
pretty obvious one. I think even in the immediate aftermath of the announcement, there were people asking, what about Josh Beckett? Josh Beckett, if memory serves, he he fell exactly two votes short of induction. Two fan votes short of induction last year, 69.8% when we averaged together the staff and the fans. So with Beckett, everybody knows the obvious. He put the team on his back during the 2003 postseason, pitched on short rest in the clinching game six of the World Series against the Yankees, and pitched a complete game in that effort. Uh, aside from that, he I mean, he pitched on opening day during that season two in 03, in, during that 2003 season, and he remained with the team for two more years after that as well and was pretty productive. The best all-around seasons of his career, you could say, were, were with the Red Sox after the trade. But overall, I mean, he is a, a first-round draft pick that made good with this franchise, even though he wasn't quite as durable as they had liked during his early seasons of his career. Wasn't totally consistent. Um, I mean, he had he stepped up in the biggest possible moment, and you look at the overall numbers, and he is across the board um, pretty clearly one of the top five pitchers in franchise history. I don't think that's a stretch to say he's cracking the top five as of this moment. So he's someone that just barely fell short. A lot of people feel strongly that he should be in, but there was a strong enough minority to keep him out uh, last year. So I'll be very curious to see exactly if that you guys can push him over the hump now that you aren't a little distracted by the no-brainers. And just to be clear, at this moment, there's no limit on how many players you can vote for on the ballot. Just liking some guys uh, doesn't mean you have to punish others for that reason. There is no limit. It's all about voting for the players that you feel are indispensable to the history of the Marlins franchise. Some of the others that they didn't get quite as close to the threshold, all of them a little bit above 50%. Hanley Ramirez at 53%. He is uh, he's right there as I really, without question, the most productive infielder in franchise history in terms of wins above replacement, a sensational peak, very dynamic player, also a very frustrating player, and one who, of course, never made the postseason during all his years as one of the leaders of the team. Edgar Renteria got 52.3% last year, the hero of the 1997 World Series clinching game. has been a couple years with the Marlins before being traded to a variety of teams, so his tenure with the team was relatively short compared to these others. Charles Johnson, 52.2% uh, support, former the first draft pick ever of the Marlins coming out of the amateur draft in 1992, made it to the majors for the first time, I think in 1995, 1994, 1994, and then really stuck beginning in 1995. A couple all-stars, a bunch of gold gloves with the Marlins as well, two separate stints, and of course was there in 97 for the World Series as well. Who else do we got here? Dan Ugla. Dan Ugla is what number two on the all-time franchise home run list. He got 51.5% of the vote. Only five seasons with the Marlins, but he was very durable in those five seasons, very consistent, and a fan favorite for obvious reasons because of his his home run hitting abilities and the just the unique build that he had. A great story for someone that did not have the kind of pedigree some of these other players. A Rule 5 draft pickup who ended up sticking and ultimately went to the Braves. The Braves overpaid for him, and he's not going into their Hall of Fame anytime soon, but he has a pretty strong case with the Marlins in terms of the kind of impact that he had for a whole generation of 
people that were growing up right along during the second half of the 2000s. And Juan Pierre, very close behind him at 49.9%, just right around 50-50 with Pierre. Only three seasons with JP in Miami um, during his prime. He actually did have that sneaky fourth season. I don't know if you all remember that. Maybe it's easier to forget because in 2013, the team uh, lost 100 games uh, just starting a rebuild, but they picked up JT on JP on a one-year deal back then, and uh, he played a little bit in their outfield right towards the end of his playing career. Most known, of course, for 2003 to 2005, played in every single game, regular season and postseason during that stretch as their leadoff hitter, right around, right around the league leaders in stolen bases, hitting machine, his his walk-up song, Legendary, as well. And he came up in some big moments during that 2003 run. Even now, he's remained part of the organization as an instructor, guest instructor who's usually at spring training, works with the outfielders, works with the base runners. And you could tie that into his case, too. I mean, it was part of his time with the Marlins, even though not as a player. He's still continuing to have uh, an impact on the organization for the better, so I understand his case as well. A couple outstanding players who were not on the ballot last time because of the you know the formula that I was using to identifying candidates. I didn't have Pudge Rodriguez on there. I didn't have Kevin Brown on there, and that's because Brown only spent two years with the team, and Pudge was only there in 2003. That's why I left open the the possibility for people to write in candidates that are missing for whatever reason. That's a big part of this process, and both of them were, they were pretty far and away the two players that were most requested as write-ins. So Kevin Brown, 96, was arguably the best pitching season in Marlins history, and Pudge was arguably the best all-around player on that 2003 team. Josh Beckett probably isn't quite as able to step up in those moments in the postseason unless he's pitching to Pudge during that run. I believe Pudge started every single game of that postseason run behind the plate. So I understand their cases as well, and let's see if they get to 70% between our staff and the fans. One of the other conditions I, I left um, created last year, and I'm bringing it over now, is giving some breathing room between these players' careers with the Marlins and when they're eligible to come up in the vote. Uh, obviously, active Marlins players, not a part of this, and I created a three-year buffer in between the last game these guys played with the Marlins and when they're eligible on the ballot. So because of that three-year buffer, last year, uh, Giancarlo Stanton, not eligible. Marcel Ozuna, not eligible. Christian Yelich, D. Strange Gordon, all those guys were traded uh, just within that window at the start of this most recent rebuild and without enough time to kind of process everything about it and the fact that all of them are still active players elsewhere in the majors, I didn't feel that it was quite right to leave it open to the public, but now they've uh, they're it's all it's free game, so we'll see exactly how they do. They I mean their resumes kind of speak for themselves. Stanton is perhaps the most productive position player in Marlins history, but far and away their leader in almost every counting stat from home runs to RBIs to uh, runs scored. To, to everything, so many key highlights, and of course the only Marlins who win a National League MVP, and Yelich and Ozuna, excellent too. I mean, Ozuna during that 2017 season was a great Robin to Stanton's Batman. 
Yelich won a gold glove during his five seasons with the team and was just a really, really consistent hitter, even if not for the power he'd develop later. D. Gordon won a gold glove and a batting title from his very first year with the Marlins and continued to be very productive the couple years after that. I'll be curious to see exactly how that comes back. Remember, that threshold for them is higher than the others because of that Miami era to 85%. Can they get to 85% for induction? I'll be very fascinated to see that the final ballot will be going out on Tuesday morning. We're first going to have our staff vote amongst ourselves. Remember, that's going to count for 50% of the vote. We'll keep that under wraps. And then I'll present, I'm sure you'll see it on social media, at the Fish Stripes account on Twitter and Instagram. You'll see it, of course, on fishstripes.com. And we'll be sure to plug the link every single day on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, and on Friday. Friday is probably going to be the last day that we have the voting open. And then next week, during that little downtime between the end of spring training and opening day, that's when the tabulation is going to happen. And that's when my announcement is going to come as to who we agreed is worthy of entering the Fish Stripes Marlins Hall of Fame, joining the seven players and joining the, the 16 total inductees from the inaugural class. Thanks again to our sponsor, Symbol. Uh, they've been, uh, they're going to be our partner, hopefully throughout the entire 2021 Marlins season here on the podcast. And just looking forward to some real games. So much respect to everybody that's been listening during these slow times with the team uh, when not a whole lot is at stake. We're about to flip that switch. And so hopefully you guys are just as fired up as I am to see it all play out on the field and here on the pod. So of course, we're going to have plenty of content here on the feed the rest of this week, daily small pods. And uh, beginning in the very near future, I'll have a video version of these podcasts as well, upload to the Fish Stripes YouTube account so that we can reach as many different fans as possible on whatever medium you like to get this content from. Thanks as always for listening and be sure to check out all of our coverage on fishstripes.com. Go fish. Thank you.